Okay, welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, I'm back with my good friend, Bruce Alderman, and we are going to continue uh, the special iQuad edition. Bruce, thanks so much for coming and joining me again. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, looking forward to it. Good morning and hi, maybe almost afternoon for you, so. Yes, uh, indeed it is afternoon, but um, we're, uh, yeah, so this is part two uh, of this long and winding iQuad path I developed. Uh, so we're gonna bridge a little bit to what we did last time. Uh, in fact, there's actually been a slightly new formulation, at least a way to frame, not a difference, but a different angle that might be helpful. Uh, and then we'll summarize some of that and drop into the, um, the core aspect of this part two, uh, if that works for you. Sounds good. All right. And then for people that are listening, remember these iQuad special editions, at least, uh, really are uh, have to be sort of grounded in the PowerPoint. So it does require a visual. Um, we'll put the link of what these uh, so that people can at least scram through them if they are listening audio wise. But I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. and shift up here. Okay, <clears throat> so here we are exploring then part two, uh, where we're gonna enrich uh, the identification matrix uh, via the four core subfunctions. Uh, so if we recall from last time, the basic entry point on the iQuad coin is that human identity function, which is then symbolized by this rotation. Um, I've been dialoguing with people about this actually over the last two weeks, week and a half or so. And in a couple of explanations I've landed on, I have found um, that it resided well with people um, when I reframed it as an identification matrix. Okay, And this actually comes right from John. John prompted me in relationship to this in terms of, as he was talking about sort of the agent arena relationship <clears throat> from his uh, recursive relevance realization, he basically said at one point, he's like, well, what you're doing is you're basically creating identities all the time subconsciously. That's the model of the agent arena relationship. So you have an identification matrix. Um, I'll, I don't know that he specifically used that term, but I'm sure he'd be happy or fine with it in relationship to what he's trying to describe. Um, so this can be thought of as one's operating system for moving in the world. Uh, and uh, you know what you basically intuitively take for granted in making sense out of the world. Uh, and so, we get just, hey, you're wandering around. Uh, and uh, I pulled this from, or noticed the parallels with uh, Harmon in relationship to object-oriented ontology. Um, he's talked about sort of like how we think about objects. Uh, and and uh, I think he's got a three table model uh, or one point where he talks about the table common sense wise, uh, the table scientifically and the table through his uh, object-oriented ontology. Right now we're just at a very, uh, sort of common sense level, we're just saying, hey, you would walk into a room and it would just, if you're a sort of quote unquote typical functioning adult, you would see tables and chairs. Uh, and if you were familiar with the tools and, and technologies of the environment, you would immediately just identify those. Okay. Um, uh, let's say if you would be surprised if, let's say, somebody were playing a trick on you in some miraculous way and projected a hologram and you presumed it was a real table and you sat down in a chair and fell through it. And all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, and that would wake up your um, identification matrix as not uh, affording you the opportunity to flow smoothly in the agent arena relationship. Um, so does that sound reasonable um, from where you are, Bruce? It does, yes. And 
I'm thinking about something that correlates with some of my own work, but I'm holding back on ringing it in because I want to okay. see where you go with that. Great. So we can deepen this analysis. Uh, actually, one other version of uh, that uh, Harmon talks about and is just analysis of ontology uh, can be thought of as sort of deepening it into, say, a scientific ontology. Um, so for me, as somebody who's pretty well steeped in natural science and science in general, um, and learned uh, ways of carving up the world uh, through scientific lenses, um, I would walk around with this kind of matrix. And I share this also because this is part of what we're going to try to expand and help people deepen their sort of matrix of understanding of what is, and then that's going to position them to be oriented toward what ought to be and how to sort of get out of, well, uh, inadequate conventional frames and into deeper frames of understanding. And so, you know, I, I walk around with a sense of, oh, yeah, my psychology is mediated by a nervous system. Of course, you know, a thousand years ago, that was not well understood. Um, I understand that, oh, tables, we build them, they're actually physically made of, like all the material, the universe is made up of atoms, the electromagnetic waves are coming off uh, the table, I'm not projecting anything into the world, it's absorbing that electromagnetic radiation, I'm processing that, and that's giving rise to a particular virtual image, if you will, neurobiological virtual field that affords me the opportunity to consciously experience the table. So this is just a sort of relatively common sense, but different than the first picture in the sense that it's common sense informed by a scientific understanding. Um, but if you, once you internalize this, as is the case with all identification matrices, you basically, it drops into the backdrop um, of, of understanding. And so we take for granted that, and then we notice novelty and surprise. Uh, and you can apply, say, a Piaget frame, if you want, in relationship to sort of the identification matrix is just assimilating the agent arena relationship, um, and then it gets activated, and then it needs to accommodate when novel um, or mismatches emerge. So if I sit in a table that's actually a hologram and fall and hit my ass, it's like, whoa, I have to figure out what the hell is going on here uh, in relationship to that. So that's the that's your basic operating system, and the rotation on the coin is to emerge a fundamental set of awarenesses about what your current identification matrix might be, and then how you might expand that. Okay. And ultimately, I-quad path is fundamentally about then expanding it into the tree of knowledge and the aspects of you talk that map what is, and then ultimately also into the garden underneath the elephant sun god, which is going to then orient toward ought, and it's getting that right relationship between is and ought. Um, that is essentially what's being invited in this I-quad coin into the path uh, that ideally affords you a way to orient your life to cultivate wisdom energy. So last time we, uh, because you had some background, I sent you some stuff and I was all excited <laughs> and got off, you know, I was like, oh, let me show you the equivalency. And we got into some of the backdrop. Um, we were going to go through sort of the more common sense uh, framings of the, of expanding then the identity function into help people begin to take their normal framing of the ident of identity and then place it in the every day world and then expand that into the refined, a refined view, at least that's in, then informed by you talk. Uh, but at this juncture, we really just want to expand it into a more general view that I would say virtually every, you know, kind of reflective person should be able to at least acknowledge as a legitimate um, perspective of understanding. Um, uh, so one of the things that I said, okay, it symbolizes this identity function. Yes, people operate from their particular uh, operating system, and we can you know, recognize that. 
Um, we're framing the unique subjective knower in, in the world. <clears throat> um, and that's, that's a slightly novel play, but in relationship certainly to science, I think it's very fair to say that actually science struggles enormously um, with framing the unique subjective knower. And uh, many sort of ontologies coming out of science say it's epiphenomenal or <laughs> doesn't even exist. And I, I, of course, find that to be beyond absurd at one level. But um, I think they're really basically, it's like they don't really have a placeholder. So they forget if it doesn't, if they're a blind spot in the language system, then they just don't know how to integrate it rather than therefore that variable doesn't exist. And so the iQuad coin basically places uh, that variable into the, the system. And obviously that should be pretty easy for us to do from a first person perspective. Oh yes, I exist, who would have thunk it? <clears throat> um, we spoke loosely about this, but this is now, and this is a sort of a Utah emphasis, but again, I don't think it's very too much of a stretch um, that a normal adult human um, would be able to pretty quickly recognize two domains of their conscious experience, um, uh, especially if we define it thusly, like the person domain is the self-conscious reflective narrating egoic domain that you can explain your actions to other people. Notice that goes outside your head in a particular way. It's tied to culture. That's your person domain. And then you're embedded in the world as a primate through perspectival knowing, and we use John's frame here, perspectival, participatory, and procedural knowing would all be aspects of your basic primate. Um, but essentially, virtually, oh yeah, you have a phenomenological consciousness uh, and a egoic narrating consciousness. It's another way of saying that. Um, that uh, to me, that seems to be pretty straightforward in relationship to basically a, a, a long-standing cleave across many different domains of people that actually attend to consciousness that gets pretty quickly identified. And then in terms of the symbolization <clears throat> to try to get in the right mindset, um, uh, it symbolizes the human humanity dialectic um, in that regard, that's I am a human, human person. And then it then places me to reflect on what is my relationship uh, between groups of people across maybe expanding socio-ecological domains. So my relationship to my wife and my daughter, my other daughter and my son, those are all dyadic relations. Uh, then we can expand that to, oh, that's our family as a unit. Um, we have uh, extended family, my parents, my wife's parents, my brothers, uh, et cetera. And then, oh, what's our community, the, you know, the Utah community, uh, the integral stage community. Our, so then groups, and then you're placed in groups, and then you can have country identities, you can have all sorts of different kinds of identity. Uh, and then ultimately expanding, at least from the moral uh, perspective uh, of what kind of morality we'd want to engender, at very least, we would want to expand our understanding and empathy to all other humans. Uh, I certainly be oriented to all other sentient beings and aspects of the universe. But at a basic level, this is sort of getting the expansion at least aware of, huh, how do I relate to other people in the world? And what is sort of best for humanity relative to my own life? And those are not the same things. And how do I think about that? Um, the other uh, clear uh, element, philosophical element that this captures uh, in this is in particular, whereas the H is sort of in the H of the shape of the I quad, this is in the one, uh, one uh, I to the fourth relation. It symbolizes the a foundational dialectic in philosophy uh, around questions about oneness and multiplicity, unity, diversity, uh, integrated pluralism, if you use a general way of framing a meta-modern sensibility, that dialectic. Um, so uh, I noted Plotinus, I noticed the yin-yang symbol. Um, these are all 
uh, I think pretty ubiquitous in philosophy is this reflections on this tension and uh, the I quad uh, relation of one equals I to the fourth uh, symbolizes that with the one being the one side, obviously I to the fourth represented aspects of many. And then finally, more closely to home in relationship to the uh, unified theory, um, it, uh, the coin itself is sort of, if you get the coin, where did the coin come from? Now you're gonna relate yourself to that. Uh, the coin is offered and sort of as a psychotechnology uh, to represent the idea that this part of the cosmos, <laughs> meaning where we as humanity are in the 21st century can be thought of as sort of this joint point um, that we face an enormous number of meta crises is the digital identity problem. Uh, that's particularly the techno environmental crisis, uh, the massive changes that digital bring to the world, uh, the meaning and mental health crises all get coalesced into the meta crises, which I at times summarize at the digital identity problem. Um, and then the idea here, and this is much more of an applied sort of uh, value wisdom claim. It's like, hey, if we can get people on the iQuad path uh, and get oriented in the iQuad way, we'll create wisdom philosophies. Uh, and I'm certainly not saying it's the only one, but I'm saying it's added one to the system. And the more people that are operating on this operating system uh, will afford us ways of wisely harmonizing with each other, with the world of the digital as it emerges, with nature and you know the capacity for uh, much greater levels of flourishing in the back half of the 21st century. So that's the sort of the summary of the identity function, as it were, um, that tries to connect people. Hey, you make an identity matrix. Oh, okay. That's framing yourself as a subject of knower. You know, I have, I'm sitting here in my um, house and this means all of the things to me and you're in your house. That means to you. Um, and that starts with the subjective field, and then we expand into these. And now, so we're expanding the awareness of that identification matrix and bridging it into sort of the UTOC formulation. They're trying to keep the person also pretty well grounded at this juncture and even into part two um, with pretty common sense views of their subjective field. Great. That's all very clear. And I was thinking. And I mentioned I was thinking about some correlations with some of my work. When you're talking about uh, the different levels following Harmon of beholding the table, mm -hmm. um, I was thinking about what I call ontochoreography. Yeah. And yes. on one level, there's a way to deepen in, mm -hmm. in your perception of any one of the, you know, uh, grammatolo grammatological, you know, mm -hmm. frames. Yep. The nounal, you know, from the naive to the scientific to, you know, mm -hmm. so you can go deeper into each one of those, right. but you can also circulate them so that you can begin to notice how identity shows up in a more yes. process oriented frame yep. or a more uh, prepositional frame or a yes. more adjectival qualitative display uh, field. Um, so there's a way to circulate through those things and loosen um our identity and mm. expand the sense of identity um so yeah i see you touching on that there in a, in a very helpful way yeah um, I, let's uh, let's actually just uh, just in case folks haven't heard this so the integral grammatology um that, that you've developed orients us to think uh, sort of to use the structure of grammar to develop a metaphysics or even transcendent metaphysics that affords us massive fluidity between concepts 
uh, but while maintaining a coherent integration. So just for people, so you can think of the world in terms of nouns, and I know some people, many people have heard of this, but let's just make it for clear for people that I haven't. So um, one grammar is nouns, the world of things. I was just talking to somebody, a well, um, you know, regarded sort of person. He's like, well, obviously ontology is just really, you know, 20th or 19th century ontology is just all things. And it's like, well, yeah, mostly that's right. Um, but of course there's then processes like a Whiteheadian view, uh, which then orients towards the flow of things that's more verbal. And it's meaning not verbal. I mean, it's like as a verb, you think about the changes over time. Um, there's adjectival, which are more emphasis on properties, uh, what the, the, especially maybe from a first person perspective. John, uh, and maybe of other individuals that did this, introduced ad, adjective, adverbial, um, meaning the process by which you see and frame uh, witness functioning. Uh, and uh, I may, be, and then there's, there's obviously prepositional. Um, and may, am I, I feel like I'm missing, <laughs> that's five. Uh, and pronounal for that. And pronounal, of course, the Weberian uh, perspectival, I, uh, it, we kind of uh, thinking as an exemplar of that. So, so anyway, that, uh, you know, and it's, it's certainly well known to you, but I'll say this again. And I said this another time, I was listening to this and I literally stopped mid, you know, step <laughs> and had my identification matrix fundamentally expanded as I listen to you articulate this, okay? Because the, uh, the prepositional um, framing all of a sudden created a fluidity of relation, okay? Uh, that really, it, you know, dropped some of my categories in a brilliant and beautiful way and afforded me an opportunity to expand them. Um, so that's, it's exactly, it's a great example then about how your set of insights afforded my identification matrix, an area of growth and development. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like that we're, we're exercising in the same field right there. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. And uh, just to point people to the elusive eye conversation you had with um, John and Chris, which was just an excellent conversation. Obviously, the I think that very neatly and powerfully dispenses with any of the, you know, supposed uh, any of the framings that would say that the uh, the self is just an epiphenomenon or mm -hmm. or illusory, um, I think you deal with that very clearly and nicely there. So framing the unique subjective knower, um, unity, multiplicity dialectic, I see that going on in terms of the dialogue around the individual and the individual, and maybe the dialectic between those two and the integral and synthesis and other kinds of uh, communities that are out there. Um, so yeah, I really just feeling what you're doing plugs in to a lot of, you know, important areas of thought and brings them together in a very nice way. So looking forward to see where you go with this. Great, great. Uh, the other thing I'll just say, because it came up as an association, and I think I'll appreciate that, is as I was doing the back end of these uh, iQuad things, the, uh, the metaphysics of adjacency kept popping up with an enormous degree of frequency. And in fact, really, the journey that I build on the abstract back end of this is very much sort of an identification adjacent move. I identify adjacent, identify adjacent, and create a matrix that way. I look forward to talking with Layman uh, about that. That's very cool. And, and just so uh, an aside, we just did a dialogue with someone on the metaphysics of quality, which mm -hmm. is uh, Robert Piercig's system. Sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, looking at 
how that's basically an adjectival and adverbial yep. um, right. ontology. Beautiful. Yes, actually, it's a right, especially adjectival, the way at least John and I would, I think, frame it. A beautiful articulation of that. All right, wonderful. Okay, so now what, what I want to do is I want to basically, this is still um, anchored not into a deep dive, um, but a slight, an intermediate dive into then part two, um, where we want to take the uh, kind of this level of identification matrix and then deepen it uh, into sort of the, the psychology philosophy uh, of Utah. Um, so, and just to the, what I'll do before I dive into exactly that, I'll give a couple of general pictures for people to see where we're headed. Uh, the ultimate path that we're after, at least at the end of the iQuad thing, is the development of the Logos path to wisdom energy. That's essentially where we're at. Um, that affords the architecture, the Logos architecture of right relation with is and ought. That's essentially the goal. Okay. Uh, everyone's you, you can't you can't get an overized generalized relation because everybody's got to find their own iQuad path to right relation. So that's phrenesis. Um, but the argument here is at least here's a novel architecture uh, that affords a logos frame. Okay. Um, so uh, this is our tree of knowledge. Uh, the argument is, is that out of the infinite void comes a observable universe. Okay, in terms of infinite void, if you wonder, well, what becomes before Big Bang? What is that, you know, what a dark energy maybe even, or dark matter, at least in terms of it being dark and unclear. Um, so then this would be the observable, at least as a for, for right now, given our capacities to observe, uh, observable universe uh, mapped by the tree of knowledge. Um, the floor of this uh, can be represented in uh, as quantum field theory, whereby Planck's constant uh, sort of creates limits of space, time, energy, knowability, as it were. I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, but then we have the H factor of the human knower um, in general. Uh, and then there's scientific knowledge, scientific ontology, metaphysics, and epistemological justification systems for how the world works. The unified theory affords a particular map of that. It takes the tree of knowledge, elaborates that into the periodic table of behavior. Uh, and it says, hey, you know, there's actually a way to map the ontic reality relative to the scientific ontology and scientific epistemology in a much clearer way. Um, so this is this is just background. I wouldn't expect people to, oh, I know what you're talking about immediately. Um, but this is kind of the just a gestalt picture um, of this. Um, this is a symbol from John Wheeler uh, and his notion of the participatory universe, uh, which is very congruent with my and John's kind of view, which is you have to figure out the position of the knower. Uh, and knowledge is going to be a knower known relation at some level. And the, and the knower participates in the construction of the knowledge and how to do that and what way it does that is one of the great questions of um, philosophy. And I think physics struggles with this much more than, um, well, some metaphysical frames uh, and certainly that, that are more, more oriented because the metaphysical frames start with knowers more than with just physical objects. And then you have to get to knowers that then know about the physical objects. Um, so the tree of knowledge and you talk in general, of course, we didn't have the coin. Uh, and a lot of what we're sort of trying to do is sort of see the H factor and also is also see the H factor in the context of a wisdom philosophy. So that's a, this affords a one way of looking at it. Here's another way of looking at it, which is uh, here's you have an evolution of complexification uh, for, from data information into knowledge. The tree of knowledge maps that, the coin maps the, um, individual, then we want to cultivate wisdom and then transform it into 
uh, wisdom. I mean, cultivate knowledge, transform it into wisdom. Um, we'll talk some about rotating and flipping the coin later, um, but ultimately you then flip the coin, find the path to the garden underneath the sun god, and that transforms, at least in this particular um, vision, is the process by which the flow of knowledge is transformed into wisdom to create a wisdom energy whole. Okay, so now what I want to do, that's that's the backdrop. Now we want to then drop into, all right, well, okay, help me understand my subjective conscious field. That's what this part is in, in a bit of depth so that I'm in a position to link this matrix, what you just described with some degree of coherence for individuals that aren't, um, that didn't build the system. <laughs> like, what the hell is this? Um, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna now, um, the first step we're gonna make should be pretty congruent with what we've talked about. We'll call it the Q2 function. The Q2 function bridges objective quantifiable knowledge with subjective qualitative knowledge experiences. And it makes the point that these two empirical domains were split during the enlightenment. We'll talk a little bit about that. So, so the quality quantity, Persig is a beautiful reference here in relation. Uh, so uh, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance for people that don't know, it's actually a really moving article, uh, uh, at least for me, it was a very um, powerful book uh, that I read maybe in, well, I read it, I didn't really understand it. I don't think this is all before the Unified Theory. 2007 or eight, uh, I read that book again at a position to really absorb it and um, was moved by it deeply and saw uh, his quest for what I would call scientific humanistic philosophy and found myself deeply appreciating um, why quality represented um, that diamond, as it were, of, 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 truth, good, of truth, goodness, and beauty uh, for him in, a, in an interesting way. Um, then we'll talk about the conscious field function. Uh, so the conscious field function just basically affords a little quick taxonomy of our ordinary waking consciousness into four different dimensions for us to be clear about. So uh, the I think that we, other, other knowledge systems indeed, um, you know, even like Augustine's knowledge systems and other have attended to the differentiation of the inner conscious field in ways that are far more sophisticated. Uh, I, I think we do a shitty job <laughs> in our exterior epistemology of really clarifying. There has been actually some recent empirical work done, and I'm actually drawing off of some recent empirical work, just creating a taxonomy um, of conscious fields, and that's what this is actually drawn off of. Then from there, we go into the Q4 function, um, and this generates a clearer, generalizable, ontological and epistemological first-person frame for being in the world, uh, and I think you and I can both appreciate this because this is basically you talk integral. <laughs> it's, a, it's a you talk integral interface. Um, uh, and so well, I'll explain that in more detail, but that's the Q4 function. And then finally, then uh, we go to the I quad formal function. And the I quad formal function um, bridges uh, this work and well, at least equates an adjacent identity <laughs> uh, between all of the subjective conscious field stuff uh, into mathematics. And so these the four functions then Q2. Conscious field Q4, I quad formal. And that then would then bring us up to uh, the you know, next iteration, which then dives into uh, the learning, the background for the path at a more formal level. So um, fundamental epistemological insight uh, of modern empirical natural science was the idea of observation framed in terms of intersubjective agreement about quantifiable change, okay? 
That is measurement coupled to experimentation provided a new way to transcend idiosyncratic subjective frames of reference and give knowledge that was grounded in the exterior quantitative frame. All right, so basically, hey, we need to measure stuff. We need to have sort of a generalizable observer that's trained but is interchangeable. And then we're, through that sort of intersubjective agreement tied to quantification, replication, validity, we get objective knowledge and that's true knowledge. And, um, and it is that the dominance of that, which was brilliant and could then translate into technology, it also really minimizes the place of subjective knowing, or at least has that particular danger. And I think that that's basically the way it's unfold, unfolded. I'm gonna use, uh, here's a picture uh, from Stephen Hawking's The Universe in a Nutshell. Um, and what it shows here is the observer looking back through time at the Big Bang singularity. Um, one of the things that's relevant about it um, is what's the nature of an observer. And in physics, basically the nature of an observer is anything that can detect information off of it. Okay, so any measurement device. Um, and, and that's, and it is this, so when the uh, physics certainly cares about observers, okay, uh, and both quantum mechanics and general relativity were huge uh, part of their insights was that, hey, you had to really position the observer. By the way, even um, the original insights from Galileo uh, were centered around how do we create a generalizable frame? So he was very concerned with, for example, watching a cannonball drop from a ship, okay, and then watching how people were at the shore would watch the ship go by. And he built frames for that. So the position of the observer, if you're gonna deal with behavior, um, which I argue that science does, it's really behavior then that's observed if you're dealing with empirical behavior. So you do have to put the observer in relation. But the observer can simply be something that are specialized as a slice of information relevant for whatever, and that can be a measurer, okay? And really I would argue that essentially then the physics deals with unfolding energy, which, and information that can be pulled off of it, but it then doesn't know really how to deal with, how does information get pulled off of it, turn into knowledge and justified science? That's at least a, my critique of like a physicist theory of everything. Okay. Um, so uh, the argument is that science emerged from Enlightenment 1.0, uh, subtle plug that we need Enlightenment 2.0, <laughs> failed to account for a human knower ultimately. Uh, and while I'll, I'll justify that by, uh, well, the first thing I've already sort of articulated why um, here we have sort of the language of science, generalizable, lawful, nomenthetic, reliable. We have the language of the subjective self. And what we've been focusing on here to set the stage for this Q2 thing is this, hey, you have a placeholder, at least in the iQuad coin, relative to the tree of knowledge that puts them uh, in relation. So now I want to be clear about, okay, okay let's be a little bit clearer about how that this then gives rise to the Q2 function as quantitative, qualitative. So here is Hawking and his measurement device. And here is a drawing that I made of the tree of knowledge prior to the Hawking diagram. In fact, one of my cool moments is that I drew this uh, 10 months before my parents got me that book on the December of 2001. Um, and I had had a flurry of diagrams in January of 2001. Uh, none of the, uh, I have sort of a TOK manifesto that has like seven different um, diagrams that come out of it. And I was in one of my little manic phases in January to February of 2001. And this was one of the diagrams that I developed. Um, and when I turned to the page and saw that Hawking diagram, I literally, everyone's at Christmas and 
you know, I'm flipping through and I jumped out of the chair and said, that's my diagram. <laughs> and everyone's like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, it's like, this is the diagram. That doesn't look like it. It's like, no, it's the in, it's the mirror image without the knower. And everyone's like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Um, but that's essentially what it is. It's a mirror image without the knower. Um, and so the model that I'm, a, that from in terms of the model of epistemology is really that science fundamentally is the active process of trying to factor out the subjective knower to yield an objective description. But the way you do that is not just through math and logic and experimentation, but you actually have to know the architecture of knowledge that begun, began the process. It's not like all of a sudden that history disappears, okay? Uh, and the argument really is physics has no real way to ground the emergence of justification systems, essentially. Doesn't know what those are. It feels that it can get rid of them and reduce it to analytics. And the argument is, no, actually analytics emerge out of justification and you actually have to have that um, bridge. Um, so, uh, you know, here's, he, this is sort of the physics version, but to actually get knowledge about it, okay? What you have is you have individual knowers and then really science is then seen as the development of the anti-subjective knower. And then we can put these two things like this so that the coin still carries the place of the knower from that first person perspective. And then the emergence of science and scientific knowledge, in this case, represented by the tree of knowledge, emerges out of the scientific method, which basically tries to eliminate the idiosyncratic individual from blind randomized controlled trials or whatever and generate a generalizable objective. So, um, but the architecture then of the I-Quad and T-O-K provide a way to connect the objective world and the subjective world, as opposed to an enlightenment and basically just eliminate it. So we can have two sides of the coin here rather than just, oh, there's one side that's really dominant. I think Wilbur does a really nice job of, and, but that dominance then shrinks the other, you know, subjective humanistic aspects of knowing. But with the T-O-K and coin together, we can say, hey, no, each of us wanders around in the world, right? <laughs> okay, and, and, and some of us, <laughs> yes, there it is. You can see the, you see the light there, Bruce, I know. Um, and in fact, each of this, then we can have then a generalized map that then places each of our lives, you know, your, you know, my parents, your parents get hammered one night and voila, <laughs> all of a sudden the journey starts, right? <laughs> And so you become a you become a little zygote, and then ultimately, you know, you find yourself as a wandering human being with a particular epistemological portal in the world, with all the other people wandering around. Uh, and so we get seven point eight billion of them. Um, but the point of it is, is that this this map clearly provides a very clear frame for the position of each of our idiosyncratic epistemological portals relative to the generalized frame. Um, as opposed to the matter-mind confusion of general standard enlightenment models. Okay, so that's the Q2 function. It's basically, oh, it's two sides of the coin. We can put the coin. Uh, there's a qualitative subjective. Um, one thing I've noted, or at least I write about in my book, is like, yes, we should be very clear that there's two fundamentally different dimensions of the word, uh, definitions of empiricism. So empiricism originally is first-person observation. I empirically see this table, and then it becomes scientific systematic third person, which is measurable, quantitative. And uh, we lose right now, oh, you know, empirical evidence, right? If everyone says in generally empirical evidence, and you would say, yeah, I saw empirical evidence that masks don't work because I wandered around without a mask and didn't get a, a sickness. And people are like, that's not empirical evidence. 
And I was like, well, okay, you know, what is empirical evidence? Well, systematic scientifics, third person objective quantifier. But of course, first person is, hey, this is what I see. We need, we need clarity about those. Uh, and this provides a frame for proper relation. Okay, now we wanna then drop into the first person uh, and then just talk, uh, map the conscious field function. Um, and uh, so here's the conscious field function. Uh, this is based on actually some empirical work done on what's called pristine inner experiences. Uh, there's a methodology here that somebody uh, developed and I'm, I should have checked on this guy's name. I haven't seen this in a little while, so I'm blanking on his name. I apologize if this guy happens to be listening, although I shot him a note to try to talk to him and I never heard back. So maybe this is my passive aggressive attempt to demonstrate <laughs> resistance and resentment. <laughs> All right, so here it is. Um, uh, so uh, to set the stage for the conscious field function, uh, I'm gonna introduce, and folks will be pretty aware of this probably, um, my map of mind one, two, three, uh, which, which is the work that I've done to try to delineate the epistemology ontology of mental process uh, in right relation. Uh, so mind 1B, that's overt activity of animals, um, what you would see from the outside, the animal doing. Mind 1A refers to neurocognitive information. Mind 2 is the conscious experience of being the epistemological portal, uh, you know, for the valence qualia into adjectival adverbial qualia and global neuron workspace kinds of stuff. Mind 3A in humans is the egoic justification system and mind 3B is what I'm doing right now, talking publicly into the world uh, along those lines. Um, so that's mind one. And we can see that behavioral investment theory at least provides a exterior empirical science of that. Um, mind three, justification and the TOK provide a exterior framework for that. There's the interior position of mind two and I quad fundamentally is about that. Okay, uh, we can, and so, and then we talked about the person side. Well, that's the narrator and the experiential side. That's the primate, okay, person narrator. Okay, so now let's then talk about the inner conscious field of mind two. So one, pretty straightforward, uh, and by the pristine experimental, uh, inner pristine experiences is this way is the methodology this guy delineated these categories where I'm pulling off of them, is that he give little people a little beeper or reminder and he would just, whenever it go off, uh, these subjects would simply have to look like, I don't remember exactly, but I think it's three to five seconds or eight seconds back and state without any interruption as, or as unmediated as possible, what exactly was on your field of attention, okay? And then he classified the things that were on the field of attention in the following categories, okay? There were a total of five and I'll get to the fifth one uh, at the end, but this is one, exterior, uh, sensory awareness, okay? So that's specifically focusing on adjectival properties, basically, okay? Ooh, this feels cold, or what is the shape of this, okay? The second, interior, uh, interception feelings of the body, especially like if you're in pain, like last week I was dealing with um, my sciatic nerve, so I spent a fair amount of time getting, drawing my attention back into that thing that was waving at me and getting close in my body. I was much more aware of that. So this is basic valence, quality of feelings, pleasure, pain, appetite, it drives, things along those lines, and certainly run rise up into uh, emotional states. Probably the most common is sort of an inner scene. Um, basically, that is seeing the landscape and thinking about it in terms of essentially affordances and stressors. So you, that when we really think and we're 
collapsing a lot and our identity matrices were collapsing a lot and seeing, oh, here's a possibility down the road. How do I get this you know, job? How do I ask this girl out? All of these other kinds of issues. It's a matrix of particular, and that this would be a sort of the vision logic. Um, and I don't mean that in the Wilberian sense, I mean sort of visual imagery and reasoning uh, sense. Uh, where you're collapsing different categories together and rotating them around in, um, in your image and then talking about it in relation. So you have a private narrator. So these are four different categories um, that he identified uh, in terms of our my own taxonomy, the inner speech, because it can flow into the world in a different sort of way uh, is a different category, but that certainly can afford us. So hopefully, um, and I should, now that I'm getting more aware of the yogic version, I'll just say this, what we're talking about is normal waking state consciousness. <laughs> so not, you know, uh, the meditative states and everything else obviously start to afford us a whole another set of categories and new states, and um, we should do attend to this, but this is just normal waking consciousness mapping. Uh -huh. um, so the last thing I'll say is, so, you know, the inner witness function is that this is adjectival um, frame that will drop around. And a lot of these, if we're at least sort of attending on them, in the past, I would have just called them qualia, but I now really see them as, oh, it's these are adjectival qualia being framed by an adverbial witness function. That's helpful. You know, John's distinguishing those two kind of grammars, as it were. Um, and the last thing that I'll share is in the uh, research, this guy uh, found that a, there was a good set of ideas that he called unsymbolic thought. Okay, that lacked any kind of vision or any kind of even narrative. Um, and, and it was, they, they just was, I'm thinking about something, but I don't really have a picture. So for me, when I read this, it was like, uh, I, I had a thought, like I was earlier that day, I was kind of struggling with the old Socrates question of what is justice, okay? And I was on a walk and I realized that, yeah, I, I had a lot of thoughts about justice that really weren't pictures and they weren't narrative. I was mulling the concept of justice over in my head, um, but I would have been hard pressed to say I had a picture in my head of that um, or even a narrative. Okay, I was just sort of the concept somehow was fused in my consciousness. I knew it was a problem I was working on. Um, I'm going to call that here just intuition. Um, he got into, he, I know there was some pushback for people to say, well, unsymbolized thought could potentially be confusing, uh, but basically sort of you can be conscious that you're mulling shit over, but you don't necessarily have any genuine, say, adjectival um, uh, oh, uh, clarity uh, that's associated with the thought. Okay. So here's your conscious field function, basically four domains of your subject of conscious experience, uh, four of which are very clear in terms of their presentation. The fifth is sort of fuzzy, but clearly something I want to give credit to and say it's, yeah, you know, obviously I'm trying to jam these also into four. It's, so that it's easier to remember because everything's four in this little presentation. <laughs> okay. Okay. So inner seeing, inner speech, sensory awareness, feeling from the body. And so the I quad then conscious field is like, oh yeah, in terms of building the matrix, you know, consciousness really isn't just one thing. Uh, you know, we're actually now starting to develop a much richer, nuanced, differentiated version of this thing. Uh, that we call consciousness. Uh, and we did it in terms of agent arena identification matrix. And now we're doing it in terms of the richness of the witness function and what it witnesses and the domains of that. Okay. Um, and then finally, uh, or not finally, the, the next we can now shift into from the uh, 
conscious field, Q2 conscious field now into Q4, and this is called the quadrant quadratic. Q4 bridges into an onto epistemology that includes both subjective conscious experience and the exterior real world. And like I said, you'll know where we're going in this direction. Um, and it starts then, it's the quadrant quadratic. And so I'm pulling right off of um, Wilbur here. So the Wilbur bearing quadrants of interior, exterior, individual, collective, that then affords the pronounal <laughs> grammar uh, of, uh, of how to view the world from the inside individual, inside um, collective, outside individual, outside collective view. And the terms for this, I think, are very, very useful. Certainly thinking in terms of my own phenomenology, that's then deep mind, uh, not deep, but you know, really embedded in my perspectival mind too. Culture, my justifying mind then hooks up with you and okay, we're in an integral stage culture or you talk culture, um, that's we space. Uh, and really I think justification systems and humans are necessary for really coordinating those. There's behavior, what am I doing? And then what are the um, large scale systems that we were embedded in that are contextualizing that behavior? Um, and you talk offers particular kinds of frames of reference in that. I'm not going to get into those, but basically, if you were enriching your identification matrix, this, this affords then opportunities uh, to do that. Okay. So, and the, so now the I quad basically is like, oh, okay, I'm going to um, in, enhance my capacity of moving my perspective around so that I can now be, oh, yes, this is my perspective. This is our we perspective. This is how other people would see us uh, systemically or, or at the individual level. And this gives the quadrant aspect of the function. So the quadrant is basically stealing from, or you know, appropriating. I've engaged in appropriation, Bruce. Somebody call somebody. <laughs> appropriating Wilbur, okay? And then placing it in the, in the context of a, a really perspectival shift. And I'll appropriate you too by basically saying you can flow prepositionally or the prepositional grammar and the broaden all of that lensing. Um, but this is a useful as, as the popularity uh, and uh, fecundity of Wilbur's thought evidence is that quadrant system is pretty damn useful in terms of thinking about lots of different things. Okay, so then, so that's the quadrant part. Now the quadratic, and that's by the way, is heavily epistemological. Notice that it's all about sort of the framing of the knower and moving around and then how that affords the capacity to aspects, to specialize different aspects and features of the, of the universe or yourself and the self-world relation in different ways. And now we can shift into the quadratic, um, which is much more ontological in terms of its claiming. And the ontology then is in the tree of knowledge. So the ontology of the tree of knowledge identifies the four different planes of existence as the grounded ontology. Um, maybe, and I'll say this is not necessarily completely restrictive in the sense that energy may be beneath matter at one level. Maybe there are higher planes of conscious awareness that we'll get. But in terms of our current grounding of just noticing the world, matter, life, mind, and culture afford a particular kind of um, four uh, planes of existence that the tree of knowledge maps. It also captures an aspect of the multiplicity unity dimension in the sense that as I wander around, I'm both one uh, and I'm all four of these. And of course you can individual, individual differentiation of uh, that dialectic. So the matter, I'm a physical body uh, on the energy matter space-time grid. My 
my butt's pressing against this chair at a particular amount of weight, given the gravity. I'm giving off heat in a particular way. I'm absorbing uh, certain things. My genetic cellular organismic structure is metabolizing energy at a particular level. I have, I'm able to move procedurally and I have felt experiences of being in the world. And of course I'm narrating both some privately, but much of it now in this presentation is just basically the mind 3B narrating of this structure. And uh, you know, this is a symbol from the, or graphic from the uh, elusive eye that basically says the architecture of the self uh, can be framed along this line, experiential into narrating egoic self. So uh, this is then gives us the quadrant quadratic where initially we've been wandering around the interior. Now all of a sudden we're helping individuals grow, expand their identification matrix shift perspectives. You never actually fully get out of your perspective but all sorts of psychotechnologies, education and knowledge can help you move from the, the being grounded in your naive phenomenology and, and expand into the capacity to see the world from a wide variety of different domains. That's your epistemological expansion. And then the ontological claim that we can at least, um, a very useful way of seeing the world ontologically is the differentiation of matter, life, mind, and culture. And I can do some cool retro shit with that. <laughs> I love it. So, so that's the Q4. So we Q2, then we did conscious feel, basically waking sensory stuff into exterior, interior imagery, narrative, and sort of some intuitive uh, thing, then expand this identification matrix through the insights, say, of Wilbur and the great chain of being slash TOK to ground our ontology into a quadrant quadratic. And then finally, what we kind of want to, what we've been doing really is talking about first person and third person empiricism. Um, but there's also a logical architectural structure, uh, both at the level of sort of formal logic. And then ultimately, as I was just talking to a physicist and trying to share some of him, he's like, well, math is everything. <laughs> like he was a mathematical ontological guy um, and was like, well, you know, and I don't know, you know, basically math's the only language that really confers true knowledge. I'm like, well, I don't know about that. But anyway, that was his, where he was coming from. And certainly the whole, uh, this we now need from the, the structure of this is to also uh, at least make adjacent and then build bridges into math. And that starts with the formal function. And we've already talked about this of I, I quad referring to the imaginary square root of negative one. Um, so that's what I is, I squared is negative one, I to the fourth is one. The I quad coin is in the shape of the circle. Uh, and this is the complex unit circle and pl pl complex plane, which is imaginary on the y-axis typically uh, and uh, real on the x-axis. And ultimately this gives rise to the complex number plane, um, which is a whole branch of mathematics. Um, and it's interestingly, as a foreshadow, it's a branch of mathematics that then becomes very salient in physics uh, in particularly quantum mechanics field theory and even in general relativity. And um, this is then, uh, in addition to the uh, complex plane, we can actually also add, uh, and this is uh, work from Leonhard Euler, add the natural log function and the Euler formula, uh, which relates to the uh, concept of the way in which an exponential imaginary real um, relation. I'm not gonna get into too much of that, um, but just basically for now, trust me, 
I pulled this off of a real math thing. Um, and it's a, and it is genuine mathematical complex uh, numbers. And the I quad is a representing uh, an adjacency, a conceptual identity adjacency, but basically saying, hey, there is, we've now created a subjective field. And now our subjective field is entertaining the mathematical logic relations of the complex plane. And um, in relationship to what that affords is, hey, we can then think about this in terms of hmm, things like negative one plus one or negative i plus i, or even e to the pi i plus i to the fourth, all of those create certain kinds of equivalencies. Um, and ultimately the argument will be is that that matrix of equivalency um, sets the ground for a formal set of logical relations, a fluid formal set of logical relations that afford conceptual operators that allow physicists to go out and map physical phenomena. Uh, and that is what you know sets the you talk and tree and coin apart from because it says, oh, I actually have a container that affords us a placeholder for the subjective physicists doing work. Uh, and rather than having to eliminate that as, oh, that's just all subjective bullshit and then we're discovering what truth is, it affords us clarity about how the subjective work together to create intersubjective objective knowledge. Uh, and we don't have to break our understanding, we can maintain a whole consilient understanding because we now know where the place of this is, as opposed to just saying, well, it's too goddamn complicated to figure out what the knower is. We'll just factor them out with math and experiment. Okay, <clears throat> so bottom line is human identity function divided up into these four subfunctions: Q2, conscious field, Q4, and the formal function. Okay. Ultimately then, um, and this, well, I think this, this wraps it up. So the combination summary point of IQUAD and TOK allows one to deepen one's metacognitive observing capacity, okay? Understand oneself as an observer. And then I'm gonna situate this as, I'm gonna pull the periodic table of behavior in and say, hey, I kind of go back to that identity matrix where I had the person looking at the table. Um, here's a more advanced way of thinking about the way I, you might see the world as you really become proficient in the TOK and periodic table of behavior, which is dividing the world up into an ontological layered cake of 12 different domains. Okay. Um, there's, this is a pull off of unity of science people. They built a thing called the ontology, ontological layered cake. It only had six different floors in it, um, arranged slightly different, the periodic table. Uh, in fact, starts with the basement floor of energy information field being everything. You see that in Big Bang, you see it in quantum field theory. Particles are disturbances in the field, atoms then are a collection of those, molecules, then we go across scale into things like big things, earth and suns and solar systems and galaxies. Uh, then we see the emergence of the prebiotic soup and molecular biology that somehow translate into fully functional cells as the fundamental unit of life. They then grow into bigger organizations, into the multi-cell colonies across ecologies. And then about the Cambrian explosion, we get neural networks tied together into complex active bodies and brains to give rise to what we call mind one, or at least animal behavioral activity. Uh, they get into groups, evolve over 500 million years or so. Uh, then we see symbolic justification, say 100,000 years ago, the person justifying egoic system unifying a family into a cultural anthropological system. And then ultimately we're gonna start merging with technology at the level of civilization over the last five, 10,000 years and ultimately um, build science. 
And then finally, we're observers uh, as a long traditional history of that, uh, looking back now and seeing the identification matrix um, and are then, hey, transcending that identification matrix um, into maybe a higher level of consciousness that transcends conventional understanding that affords us an opportunity perhaps to see deeper down and then broader up uh, truths and, and arrange ourselves uh, in relationship to that. And you get sort of a four, 13th floor view down into the basement and see the hold. And then that uh, starts the process of really then creating uh, an identity matrix, um, identification matrix. So that is part two of the tour in relationship to the I-Quad uh, coin. That's great. I'm just noticing so many correspondences. I don't know which way to, <laughs> to go with it, but um, I think that for me is one of the clearest presentations I've gotten from you hmm. on the architecture of this and the intent of this and um, some of the psychotechnological affordances uh, of this. I love um, that frame, yeah. So I really appreciate it. Uh, one thing that we talked about off camera um, that I'll, I'll mention here Please, that I yeah. feel you're in accord with is basically a, a tantric sensibility and a tantric approach, which fundamentally looks at shifting the self-world uh, formulation through a series of transformations, um, ultimately to arrive at a more liberated and wise uh, way of inhabiting the world, one that is much more deeply participatory, you could say translucent um, to the deeper, uh, probably, you know, what you're pointing to actually with the, uh, the formal uh, level of, uh, you know, the formal mm -hmm. layer of the mm -hmm. coin, um, that's, you could say that that's pointing yogically to the, the causal level. Mm -hmm. It's pointing to mm -hmm. the, the basic fundamental syntax of things that makes the appearance of worlds at all possible. And of mm -hmm. course, you're pointing towards that as a, a language system in a sense, mathematical language system. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot that you can realize in working in that territory. Totally. Um, but can you, for, can, oh. can you, as I confess to you off camera, I don't think I knew Tantra Sutra terminology until literally two years ago on Bard's list. I mean, so that, so, and, you know, that's probably indicative of my own narrowness in the world mm -hmm. at some level, but I'm probably not alone, at least in the Western world of conventional people to not know exactly the Tantra Sutra frame, and of course I'm still learning. Can you, Bruce, share a little, that was a wonderful articulation of a slice of Tantra. Can you give folks just a little bit of background about those terms and what they mean just for folks that would hear them for the first time say Tantra? Right, yeah, the, I'm definitely not talking about sexual cavorting in your right. office here. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, that's right. So that'd be my first thing when I like, right? oh my God, <laughs> Bruce is talking about porn? I was, you know, that's, of course, I learned it from Bard. So that's where the first- It, the, it the could first be, right, with Bard. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk a little bit about that uh, concept um, because I, it's not super prevalent in Western thought, the difference, but it's much more prevalent in Eastern thought. Right, and there are different ways to frame it and look at it. Mm -hmm. um, you could say that the sutric approach on one level is more conventional level teaching, which yep. starts with 
what you uh, perceive to be self and world. Mm -hmm. And then it gives you some rules for operating in that arena mm -hmm. to make that more functional. Yep. And so it sets up boundaries, it sets up rules, it, mm -hmm. it establishes mm -hmm. rights and wrongs. Yep. And basically the sutric teachings don't really fundamentally work yet at transforming the, you know, that given architecture, it works with them to make it more functional, nice. right? Okay. So mm -hmm. for instance, just looking at uh, somebody with alcoholism or mm -hmm. some other kind of, you know, mm -hmm. psychological issue, right. the first thing you want to do is to lay out very clear boundaries mm -hmm. and you identify, I am an alcoholic mm -hmm. and therefore I have certain characteristics mm -hmm. I have certain ways of, that I need to behave. There's certain hard and fast boundaries I need to draw okay. in order to maintain my health yep. and keep the negative away. So it works very um, conventionally, but constructively and pro-socially to, to you know, help you become more functional. And sure. it does work subtle levels of transformation, but it's not radical necessarily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um though you know it folds in the radical into into the way it it points in different directions okay. but mm -hmm. it it does so by tracing these pretty clear uh, boundaries and and, mm -hmm. and uh and, and establishes rules mm -hmm. and uh it works by for instance applying antidotes to mm. uh if you have this issue then you apply this antidote to deal with that mm. issue fascinating right. okay mm -hmm. right. the Tantric level. Um, can I can I say then maybe that would so one of when I first heard it outside the sex context, um, you know, and I'm steeped in psychology, so I sort of went to Kohlberg. Okay, so Kohlberg sort of like in a conventional. I sort of had an association of suture with conventional, and then tantra would be some sort of post-conventional break of that and awareness in a particular way. Is that it? Is that overlap uh, in any way with uh, you think the relation? Yes, it does definitely. Okay. Right, because you can, at the tantric level, you basically begin to perceive the functionality of the, um, the conventional, but also the limitations mm. of the conventional. And one of the insights there, there are different ways you can approach it, but in this particular system, one of the ways that that begins to shift is that rather than just taking all of the labels that we receive about different mind states and different emotions and different wholesome and unwholesome qualities mm -hmm. at face value, we begin to recognize them at a deeper level as all types of plays of energy. Hmm. And as types of plays of energy, they become more workable wow. and they're the, the, they, they express in particular ways within a context, but you begin to recognize how that context is set up. And you can then begin to work with those distinctions oh. and violate them in deliberate ways to basically release some potentials that are locked up in maybe a narrower framing. That's fucking like psychotherapy, Bruce. Right. <laughs> you mean I've been doing tantric shit all along? <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. That's, that's weird. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. So there's a, a strong correspondence there just you know, with you know, obviously with, with Tantra, they're working in a different, you know, sure. a, a different no, modality, obviously. Right. but there's a, I think there's a parallel there mm -hmm. and there's an interest in uh, 
progressively helping the individual to transgress certain given boundaries in order to realize more degrees of freedom right. and more degrees of the workability of their own um, mm -hmm. experience and self-world dynamics. And one of the, you know, there's the um, generation uh, phase and, you know, um, mm. basically, I, I don't want to go into all the technicality there, but with, with Tantra, one of the things that it works on is helping you transform your sense of identity um, and your relationship to the world. And it does, throw, does so through various kinds of embodied practices and visualization practices where you deconstruct your sense of self and world in very deliberate ways and then reconstruct them in more sacred mythopoetic ways. Wow. Um, recognizing that this is a construction, it's not, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it doesn't commit you to a belief that, you know, you have to take these things literally because at the end of the process, you dissolve what you construct. Mm. So you just do that, but you begin to learn to inhabit new configurations of self and world that proceed through stages. So it's basically a process of getting deeper and deeper insight into self world construction and ultimately expanding those mm -hmm. self-world constructions, making them subtler and more refined, and ultimately reaching a point where it's, you know, trans justification, mm -hmm. where you, 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 you're able to rest in the presentation of things and what you've all constructed and built, it remains operational, but wow. it's no longer a ground of identification for you. Um, Gosh, that, that um, I'm just, I'm feeling that because uh, as you know, and we just announced, uh, so me and John Verbeke and Zach Stein just sort of um, were wrapping up a uh, cognitive science show series on the transform, on human transformation uh, and a meta psychology that's up to the task. And I swear we should, at some point, whatever, whenever this comes out relative to that show, what you just afforded there and that narrative and, and undoubtedly it's known by many wisdom traditions, that would have been, just such a brilliant articulation in many ways, what I would think we were sort of groping at in some ways. Um, Zach's got some good knowledge and so does John in relation. I'm, I'm more impaired in my limitations in that regard, but I just love the way you articulated what th that tries to engender, the kinds of transformations of identity that that kinds to engender. And then, you know, what, what, what that affords in terms of kind of the how you will be in the world in a sophisticated, rich, nuanced, complex, flexible way. Um, so anyway, I just deeply appreciate that. I'd like to give just a, a little metaphor that I sometimes share in my classes. It's a, a framing that I, I shared in transpersonal psychology classes, mm. even though it comes from the tantric mm -hmm. and Dzogchen traditions. Um, Dzogchen is considered kind of one of the highest Dzogchen or Mahamudra in the Tibetan system, mm -hmm. one of the highest levels of, uh, of teaching. Okay. And for many centuries, it was only shared individual to individual mm. um, or, or even just spoken orally mm -hmm. and not hmm. necessarily, you know, codified mm -hmm. um, because of its subtlety, but also because of the license it would appear to give you if you took it in a naive way mm. um, that you couldn't really, that, that it would give you a sense that there's nothing to do and it might not be very useful um, but hmm. 
so in the sutric system, you draw the clear boundaries. There's rights mm -hmm. and wrongs, do's and don'ts. Right. And a very program programmatic way of, of, of working with things and, and holding to virtues and avoiding vices and all of that. Um, works well with, with standard initial... egoic rationalism kind of exactly <laughs> and that's it works well with you know initial you know approach to alcoholics anonymous and many other kinds of uh, right you know therapeutic modalities tantra works at transformation mm -hmm. and it begins to playfully transgress boundaries so that you can begin to see that even in the vices there may be some wisdom even mm -hmm. in the negative states Yep. anger and other kinds of conditions there may be something that's actually still useful to you sure. in terms of the function of your overall system especially if you don't plug it in to the basic level of ego identification but allow it to liberate its more energetic potentials as things that can be contributed to the overall functioning of your system totally. so mm -hmm. conventionally they would talk about you know anger is destructive for the sutric approach Anger right. can give you a white flame-like clarity that's very useful in your interactions right. um, as long, if you don't let it take over you. Mm -hmm. So it's kind um, of almost like a Nietzschean from in Western, like Nietzsche would then be in sort of critiquing the sutra in a particular kind of way if we jam this into a Western sort of philosophical frame, as it were, perhaps. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there's an alchemical uh, kind of orientation to Tantra, mm -hmm. where it says, you have a system that's this way, we can work with it, and suddenly transform it into something else. Wow. And so there's a, a, a very progressive way of working through the different constellations of self world identity systems, and alchemically transmuting them into different and more refined forms. And then Dzogchen basically would say, uh, the metaphor that is used here is snow falling on the ocean okay. and the snow hitting the ocean is released into the ocean mm -hmm. and there's no difference. And so from the Dzogchen point of view in certain refined states of awareness, which they call Rigpa, there's nothing you need to do to any mental arising, any mental configuration, right. because it's of the same nature, the same energetic right. nature as the awareness itself. Right. And if you're able to just hold that awareness, you don't have to consciously transform the elements and the, the configurations. They will spontaneously release themselves into that more holistic, very right. stable field. And so it's, it's, a, it's a, a way of, of inhabiting the contents of your mind that's non-manipulative and it doesn't take any of the elements ontologically in a naive way and or identify with them. And in that way, it allows them to what they would call, you know, um, uh, you know spontaneously uh, self-liberate. Mm. Basically, they release their potentials um, without laying down conditioning tracks in the brain wow beautiful i love that i'm getting associations to rob scott and his fundamental shift uh notions um i'm also that's an underdeveloped area in my unified approach psychotherapy uh so the the unified approach psychotherapy is really 
trying to get the centered ground uh, of, of what psychotherapy is in, in the West and the core principles that foster that. And then it hones in on classic neurotic problems and, and affords a sophisticated psychodynamic, cognitive behavioral humanistic, um, and but really rationally goic approach to reverse the neurotic looping, okay? Um, which at the level of, if you're coming in for psychotherapy and all that other stuff, that's fine. Um, but in terms of deep transformation, I've always felt that there's another, like, you know, other systems, you know, cultivate sort of that, almost the magic potential, you know, the, you know, sort of, they, they turn the systems into, you know, what is with so much fluidity that all of a sudden, and then you can sort of really create that shamanistic transformation in, in terms of how to relate. Um, and I'm, uh, I have some sense of what's happened to me in relationship to that, but I'm not trained in that regard. And that's really what that's also activating me. It's like, wow, you can really start to bridge into those healing traditions in a particular way. Um, you know, kind of like psychedelics are doing and, you know, would be equivalent in some ways almost in terms of the, the effect that they have on the identification matrix, as it were. Exactly. Yeah, I, I feel that there is a, uh, a confluence that's beginning to happen that's, you know, as we begin to understand uh, more about what's going on in Tantra as a way of working and in Dzogchen as a way of working, um, while not wanting to be culturally appropriating, we can nevertheless recognize that we're basically fundamentally human beings and there's ways of working with our internal systems and our, our meaning-making systems and our self-world construction. And, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be plugged into a certain metaphysics to still be useful um, knowledge. And I'd like to see you talk, for instance, you know, with Forrest Landry, because I understand he has the Western core Tantra, um, mm. which he's beginning to articulate, hmm. um, which is tantric and shamanic principles applied in Western frameworks. Um, and we just did an interview on our channel with a guy named Craig Kaminsky, who's also looking at all the preliminary practices of Tantra through a Western lens that allows us to plug it into psychotherapy and wow. into um, Greek wisdom and things like that. So I think there's a That's lot that can be afforded here. And to me, what I'm hearing from you already contains so many of the elements and also bring something else that's not there that mm. I think it's, it, it could be a really useful, um, you know, deepening dialogue. That sounds super exciting because that's an area I feel um, I have just an outline for. I mean, like I said, I mean, embarrassingly, I'm confessing Tantra and Sushi are new vocabulary where it's only four years old or three years old for me. So, um, so that shows you where I am in that regard. Um, but I have a sense of that. And of course, my psychotherapy training, which is pretty rich and broad, um, and the nature of psychotherapy forces you into all sorts of possibilities in dealing with people's identification matrix self-world stuff. Um, so, but it's not developed in that regard. You know, it's stuck in an egoic rationalism, um, you know, because this nature of institution of psychotherapy in the West is basically, hey, you got to manage these people and regulate them. You know, exactly. sort of like social control forces and secular priests going, oh, fuck, we can't have these people suffering and not working, you know, basically. Uh, and, and so we don't foster them going crazy. Um, but there are these shamanic issues that afford a different kind of relationship. Uh, and you see this some in some of the experiential therapies. Um, but there's clearly a huge and fruitful set of bridges 
I'm glad you also brought up Forrest Landry. I have back channeled him some. Uh, one of these days, I hope to open up that line of communication. I've listened to some of his conversations with John. At first, it was a little confusing to me, but I'm starting to hear serious and deep resonance with his imminent metaphysics. And uh, if he's developed a Western Tantra kind of thing, that's all the more glorious to check it out. Great, great. So. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing all of this. It's like, as I mentioned, it was a, to me, a very clear uh, overview of, that really gave me a, a new insight into what you're up to. And I really appreciate it. Great, man. Well, I deeply appreciate you jo joining me on this journey. Uh, and uh, I will rope you back in for part three, if you're so willing. <laughs> Uh, and we'll find a time to do that maybe in a month or whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll get some time in, in, in the upcoming weeks. I'm also excited to, once we start releasing these episodes, you know, this conversation uh, about, you know, we'll have some cross dialogue about transformation, perhaps, uh, and sacred naturalism. And hell, we just got all sorts of different stuff to do. So it's going to be great. Exciting. That's great. All righty. Thanks so much, Bruce. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.